Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Have you wanted to look under the hood of a financial plan? Well, you're in luck. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Scott Taylor and Alex Luck. They're from Everest Wealth. They help many listeners all over Australia. They're financial advisors. They've got a team of people who just live and breathe financial advice. And today I'm going through a financial advice document they've sent to me. It's heavily redacted with all personal details such as names, date of birth, addresses. So there's big black chunks through some of it with their name. But I just wanted to really see under the hood of what advice they are providing to some of our listeners. And I want this to be an exercise for you to listen to what a financial advisor might be able to do for you and if they can help. Now, we're all about helping you set a gold standard for your investing here at My Millennial Money. Global X ETFs have been setting the gold standard for more than 20 years. That's right. Global X launched the world's first physical gold ETF back in 2003 and has been the home of gold ever since. With the ticker code that says it all, G-O-L-D is the simple, trusted way to add gold to your portfolio. To learn more about gold before you start investing, please read the applicable PDS and TMD from globalxetfs.com.au. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. And Alex, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Yeah, good to be here. You guys ready to have a chat about this case study? Let's do it. All right, let's get it on, peeps. I'm Glenn James, and this is My Millennial Money. Right here. So I'm looking at this heavily redacted document. This is a real world financial advice document. Yep. Uh, it's a 50 page PDF. Now, what I wanted to do was to have a look at a real world case study, right? And I asked Google earlier who was the wife of Chris Hemsworth, and it was, what was it? Ilsa. Elsa. Elsa. Yep. So we're just going to say Chris and Elsa, all right? So, before I ask you guys some questions about Chris and Elsa, their goals coming to see you, they wanted to commence uh, an investment plan. Uh, they had $3,000 to start with and they wanted to plan for a future child in terms of growing money for the child. They wanted to get into a property purchase and they want to set aside some savings of uh, 20% deposit plus stamp duty on a about a $700,000 purchase. They want to allow for a holiday every year. They want to make sure they've got an emergency fund of around $8,000. They want to review both their super accounts to make sure that the investments are solid and that it's in line with their risk profiles. And you are going to have a look at the first home super saver scheme for them with this review some insurances and basically run your eyes over everything. Look at their cash flow, make sure that's all structured. So a lot's going on here. So does Chris and Elsa, do they have kids already or are they expecting their first one soon or are they pregnant? What was the deal? 
Yeah, so Elsa was pregnant in this example, um, expecting a child, I think, in approximately sort of six months um, when we sort of started the advice. And then, yeah, they were also planning on getting getting married that year. The reason they sort of reached out to begin with was obviously, yeah, some of those those key things I just mentioned then as well. But Elsa had also received an uh, inheritance um, as well that they wanted to, to put to work to potentially help achieve some of these goals. As How well. much was that inheritance? Uh, I don't know if it's stated exactly here, but it was around between 200 to 250. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So pretty decent inheritance. Yeah. And for those thinking like if someone is pregnant or wanting to start a family, I mean, Chris and Elsa have got some advice now, but should you wait? Is it okay to start? Like, do you ever tell people there's nothing we can do just yet? Um, it really just depends on the situation completely. So, you know, that, like they say, you know, with investing, the best time to start is normally um, yesterday. Today, yesterday, sorry, yeah, and, ago, whatever they say. And yeah. the next best time is 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 right now. So it really just depends on the client situation. Um, the way we sort of, I guess, approach it as a business is we have a um, a fifteen minute sort of intro call with people that are potentially interested just to find out a bit more about their situation, what they're looking for, and whether we would be sort of a good fit and we can help them. Um, examples of where we may say someone we're not going to potentially be a right fit right now, maybe if they're at uni or they've just started their full-time job or something like that, uh, we may just sort of point them away to a few other resources first before they then potentially would get the full value from a from a financial advisor. But in a lot of instances, it really is the the earlier you can sort of start, um, the more we can we can achieve for sure. Yeah. And so that was, I guess, Alex's view. And you guys are business partners, but you've also got your own advice styles. Yeah. And we have that. differing opinions from time to time as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I'll just, I'll just add to that, that in, in terms of these clients and, and what we would suggest is it's always best to get advice um, or look into this before having kids, um, particularly in these guys' uh, example where they were looking to buy a house as well and getting married. There's so much going on that it, it may just not all be possible. Like they may buy a $700,000 house, start a family Elsa goes on maternity leave as an example, and then they're just in a huge deficit position with with um, their mortgage. So it's always good to kind of forecast what it looks like before having kids, what it looks like for those kind of uh, year or so that um, one person is working less or not at all, and then after that and what that return to work looks like because there's kind of three scenarios that play out there, all differing incomes, all differing expenses, um, and we feel that's important to kind of forecast so that you know everything is achievable. And if it's not, then kind of setting priorities around what is more important. Is it the house? Is it starting a family and, and kind of going from there? And yeah, if I can just tack onto that, the earlier you start the process, then you can forecast forward, then the easier it is to make changes and to make that that possible as well. Mm. So what was the, the process with Chris and Elsa like? you have that initial meeting, you're like, yeah, I think we can add value and there are some moving parts. Uh, just talk us through the process with um, Chris and Elsa here. Yeah, so they, they reached out. Um, originally, we sort of had that 15-minute that chat that I talked about before and they were in a position where we could potentially help them. Um, from there, as part of our sort of business process, we then moved to what we call an initial meeting, um, which generally goes for sort of 45 to an hour 
fleshing out a bit more details um, about, again, sort of what they want to do and stuff like that. But it's more so for us to sort of explain how the process works, um, what we charge, how we charge, the areas of advice that we would cover off on. So they then have a really good understanding of how this would all work, including the fees and yeah, the areas that we would focus on if they wanted to proceed from there, which yeah, in this example, they did. Um, we then moved into our what we call our strategy meeting phase, um, of which case with these guys, we ended up having two meetings, which went for sort of about an hour, an hour and a half each there mm. um, as well, in which case it was just, it's just refining further down. So you start off with, these are all the things we want to do. Um, the way I often sort of explain financial advice to to clients sort of for the first time is we're just helping them put together a, a jigsaw basically. So they come to us with all the pieces, which is the goals in this example, and we help them sort of all, all fit together um, through sort of, yeah, forecasting, in-depth cash, cash flows and stuff like that. So we want this house, but we still want to, you know, have a half decent holiday a year. We still don't want our lifestyle to be impacted too much. We want to send our kids to private school. We want to send them to public school. You know, we, we bring in all that sort of data and then help them sort of fit that out. Likewise, you know, people are like, I want to be debt free in 10 years. Okay. Mm. Maybe we can achieve that, but you can't have a holiday for 10 years. Is that going to be sustainable? Oh, no, no. We need to have the holiday. Okay. Are you happy then with 12 years um, mm. and taking a minor holiday and everything? Okay. That's much better. Um, Income was 66,000 plus super and 85 plus super. Yep, so, correct. you know, a lot of people listening would have these types of incomes. Uh, and there was still obviously lots of value that you could add. When they first saw you, I'm having a look here at the cash flow. They only had three bank accounts. They had a joint savings account. They had a personal account for each person. Yep. Yep. Which is pretty common as well. Um, people often just have one to two sort of bank accounts. I guess where um, where we come in and where a financial advisor will, will work with you as well is on that, that cash flow piece and then structuring it in a way which is going to be bespoke to your own situation and then hopefully work with you too. I guess what I often talk to clients about is when you are trying to count every single cent, which in these sort of situations, it's very important, right? Because mm. we're potentially going to lose an income soon or go to half an income and you know houses are not cheap and stuff like that. Having multiple accounts where everything is then accounted for and compartmentalized really helps, um, you know, you basically stick to the process going forward. And that ability then by having, I guess, sort of multiple accounts and being able to log into your banking at any point in time and go, all right, this is our position as of today, really helps as opposed to, oh, I've got, you know, 50 grand in this account, which is which is a lot of money and you're looking at that, but then you're forgetting like, oh, I've got that that bill and then we were going to, you know, go on that holiday as well and, oh, and then really we've got to have some from an emergency account as well, mm. all sort of bundled up and then it's like, oh, well, realistically, we've only probably got 15 grand um, because the rest has been spent or, or put aside for something else. And were they currently renting at the moment or living with family? Yeah, they had just moved back with family um, just to help sort of, yeah, boost that savings before obviously um, having their first child, mm. getting married and yeah, buying a house. So as part of the financial plan, like I'm looking here at the inheritance was, yeah, about 240000 What did you kind of, did you carve off money for the wedding? Did we carve off money for the future baby? Do we, how do we actually execute some of the existing money that they've got, not including, you know, ongoing income or mortgage repayments? Yeah. So the way it worked for Chris and Elsa was when we were going through the cost of the wedding and stuff like that, that obviously, um, 
in that sort of strategy stage, um, had a chat to their families and sort of explain what they were trying to do and stuff like that. And um, they were quite fortunate in that the family came back and then sort of said, okay, we'll actually um, pay for the wedding. It oh, wow. wasn't a particularly large wedding, but yeah. weddings are still not cheap. So yeah. that was that was pretty handy. But it was only sort of through that forecasting process that they were sort of like, ooh, okay, um, mm. we might be a bit sort of short here. Mm. Um, but then it was, yeah, carving off the other sort of goals. So making sure, you know, they weren't just moving into this this future house and having zero dollars because they're going to need some furniture. Um, there's going to need to be some expenses. And when they came to see you, was the wedding date locked in? Yes. It was. And obviously the baby due date was now locked pretty in. much locked in. <laughs> it's pretty much locked in. Um, yeah. The only thing that wasn't locked in was the purchase of a house. Correct. Yeah. But it was kind of locked in to a degree because they didn't really want to be living at home totally. with their first child with their parents. As much as they obviously love their parents and stuff like that, they wanted to have their own space. And the inheritance um, that Elsa had received the sort of conditions per se around it was it was to be used for a, for a home deposit too. Right, right, right. So what did we do uh, for the home deposit? With the home deposit, there's, um, I guess we're aiming for the 20% deposit plus stamp duty so that we avoid lender's mortgage insurance. Uh, some people aren't able to obtain that uh, in, in an ideal time frame. So then it's about getting as close to 20% as possible to reduce the uh, LMI as much as possible there. But with these these guys, what we did was uh, Elsa had already purchased a house before, uh, whereas uh, Chris hadn't. So what we looked at- Just for, on that, did they still own the house or was it purchased and sold? No, it was already gone. They, they, they'd sold it. Elsa had sold it a while ago. Right. Yep. And was that from a previous relationship or- Yeah, it was from a previous relationship yep. that Elsa was in before Chris. Yeah. Yep. Okay, cool. So basically, yeah, we're back to square one, no house. Yep. No, yep. no house uh, between them, but- uh, Elsa had already bought a house, so then if they were buying together, then that kind of excluded them from any um, kind of assistance from stamp duty concessions or lending schemes that are available through the government and stuff like that. So, mm. But one thing that was available to Chris was the first home super saver scheme. Now, this is one scheme that uh, doesn't make you ineligible if you are buying with someone that's already purchased before. Mm. And given that this, was a, this advice was only a couple of months ago, we're kind of heading towards the end of the financial year. So what we what we looked at doing was flushing uh, some of their savings, albeit it was Elsa's inheritance, but flushing $15,000 of that through Chris's super fund, being able to then claim a, a tax deduction, which gets him a, a nice tax return because he's on the, the 34.5% tax bracket, um, and then pull it almost straight out to go towards that house deposit. And it as a result of doing that, it approximately saved saved them about three thousand dollars net in tax. Yeah. So, how does that whole system work? Just as a recap. Yeah. So, the the first home super saver scheme essentially, in our opinion, helps people in two ways. It helps people that are aren't that great at saving money or get to a point and then they kind of almost get bored or like, oh, want to want to spend two grand on this, but not realizing they keep doing that and then their house deposit just stagnates a bit if that makes sense but then it also helps people save for their house a lot quicker which is the main outcome for this scheme uh, because there's tax incentives so superannuation you pay tax at 15 percent whereas yeah the marginal tax rate uh, that you, you pay on on your own income depends on obviously what you earn so for these this couple they're both in the 34 and a half percent tax range so effectively by putting money into super they're not paying tax at 34 and a half percent or they're getting that, that tax that they've paid back. 
um, and paying tax at 15%. So that's how the, the saving is on that money. But yeah, you, you're effectively putting extra money into to super and then you can pull it out when you go to buy your first home. If, for example, someone was salary sacrificing extra to super through a financial year, can they turn around and change their mind and say that, oh, I want to use that now for the first home super saver scheme? Yeah, absolutely. So we've, um, I, I actually recently had a had a client who was salary sacrificing, earning really good money on, on the mines and um, just got told from colleagues that he should start earlier because it's the best thing to do. So he did for a couple of years and we got to the point where he was a bit short of the 20% deposit, um, but he had put extra contributions via salary sacrifice. So even though he didn't tell his super fund, his work, that he was doing this for the first home super saver scheme, he's still able to pull these out because you, you, you're not, you don't have to tell someone that it is for the first home super saver scheme. It's just monitored by the ATO and, and through your MyGov and any extra contributions you do over the um, super guarantee, so your 10.5%, which is going to 11% uh, July 1, you're able to, to pull out. Mm. So there you go, everyone. If you have been salary sacrificing over the last little while, that money, because it is in addition to the 10.5%, it is just flagged as possible yep. first home super saver scheme. Yep. And you can obviously leave it in there as well, which then goes towards your retirement. Mm. But the um, the issue for the these clients and um, the client, the, the, the guy that I was talking about before is they're in their 20s. So that's 35, 40 years before they can access this money mm -hmm. again. So whilst, yeah, that does have a compounding effect, will make your retirement better. Um, it was more important to both those clients that they had more accessible money now. So the maximum that you can put into the first home super saver scheme for the deposit, is that 50000 Yeah, but across four financial years because you've got a $15,000 cap per year. Thank you. Yeah, you've refreshed my memory. That's when I was like, why didn't you do more? But, but that's just the whole thing. Like the earlier you see a financial advisor, perhaps it might be better. Yeah, back to you. your question earlier about when should you seek advice, the earlier the better because, yeah, we have clients in that situation from time to time too where they're like, well... I don't want to buy a house now. I'm happy renting with my friends and stuff like that because I'm in my early 20s, but 25, 26 or you know, or even 30 or something like that, I think I do want to buy a house. I don't need this extra cash right now because I'm hitting all my other goals and everything like that. What should I basically do with it? Yeah, because if Chris did see you the financial year before and said, oh, we're going to probably buy a house in two years, we've got all this money, and if they did have the inheritance or whatever, you could have flushed an extra 15 through. Yeah, absolutely, which then just builds an, an extra three or four grand in, in tax savings as a result. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we've, we've seen people in the past where it's really not in their, on their mind to buy a house right now because they're 22, 23, yeah. um, but they know one day they want to buy a house. So then it's potentially just starting to salary sacrifice into super. Overall, they're better off knowing that they can get that money back when they're ready to buy their first home. Yeah. With one of the main caveats being that it needs to be the first home that you live in for mm. six months out of the first 12. Uh, it can't be an investment property. And it's probably important to shout out that, you know, the most recent federal budget in May of this year, there is nothing out there to say the government are stopping this campaign or this entitlement or whatever you want to call it. No, not at all. Yeah. It, you know, it wasn't, wasn't brought up at all. Yeah. So, and realistically, a lot of the time, if they did change this rule, like I'm yet to see a government change rule and not grandfather people who may have already been 
using the system. Yeah. So, so you then have plenty of notice. Absolutely. And and to be honest, at the moment, you you can pull it out. You just have to repay the the ta- the tax savings that you you received as a result. Yeah, yeah. We had yeah we get questions on that sometimes as well. Like, what if I then change my mind in the future? You can pull it out. You just then have to pay back the extra tax that you would have paid. So if someone had salary sacrificed for the last year and needed some cash, they could theoretically approach the super fund and say, oh, I'm not buying my first home now and get the money out and pay tax. Theoretically, yes. (laughs) But again, it comes back to probably... Intent. And your planning and stuff like that as well. So don't be sort of trying to, yeah. That's what, again, everything comes back to sort of trying to forecast and stuff like that as well. Am I going to need this money at some point in time? Mm. Um, I mean, I'm sure you would have to fill out some type of declaration with the ATO. Yeah. When, when, yeah, when you're pulling the money out, there is a declaration through MyGov. That's how you get the money out. A uh, common question to us is how do, I, how do I get the money out? So it is all done through your MyGov account and, and you need to do it before you, you um, enter a, a contract to purchase a house so you can't do it afterwards. So you need it. There's a bit of forward yeah. planning there. Yeah, and don't go to an auction and yeah. sign before you've yeah. filled out the declaration. Because yeah, you've got, I'm not sure I was quite mentioned this, but you've got... Um, You've got 12 months. So you take it out with the intention of buying a house in the next 12 months, which yep. can actually be extended an additional 12 months as well. So you actually have two years. Right, to buy the house. Yeah. yeah. And that's it. Like I just wanted to camp on the first home super saver scheme because it's a, I think it's a legitimate scheme that a lot of people don't use because it feels a bit too complex. Yeah, and I've I've had a client as well. Um, she did this before she came to see us, um, but however, she'd put money aside, um, decided then didn't didn't want to buy a house, and had pulled it back out, and mm. was just paying the extra tax liability that she owed. Yeah, yeah. So, so you can it does work that way too. And, and I might just close off with 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 a bit around that as well. Is um, another comment we get is well, I'll, I'll probably breach my cap because I'm earning. $130,000. So I've already got 14, 15 grand going in. And I know the cap's twenty-five dollars or $27,500 now. So won't I go over that and won't there be more ramifications? Well, the answer is potentially, but with the, the catch-up contribution rules that are now in place, you can go back on the last five financial years and catch up any unused caps as long as your balance is under 500 grand, which most super balance that is, which most people utilizing the first home super saver scheme would have a balance, super balance under 500 grand. So there are, I guess you can go over the the kind of the cap um, and still utilize the first home super saver scheme as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And what do you think is the biggest myth about the scheme? The biggest myth uh, I reckon would be that it doesn't have to be via salary sacrifice. So most people think, oh, I'll have to do it every every pay cycle in my pay. But you can just wait until mid-June, transfer $15,000 or, or whatever amount, as long as it's below fifteen dollars $2,000. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, put that into your super. As long as then you send them a notice of intent, so that's to claim a tax deduction, you'll then get that tax back in your tax return. So say you've earned $100,000 that year, that $15,000 that you've put in, you've paid tax at 34.5% through your employer. So you'll just get that tax refunded to you. I often think now because as an employee, you can do personal deductible contributions and you mentioned the notice of intent to claim declaration or form with your super fund, depending how old school they are. Like I'm probably more of the view to just set up a monthly transfer 
from your bank account to your super fund and at the end of the year do the paperwork, just in – well, I think, yeah, I'm, Alex yeah. is like, <laughs> I, like, I get both sides of the coin but it's just it, like it, it if works. your circumstance change and you want to stop it, you don't have to tell payroll or HR if, and that might be the difference. If you work for a small employer, mm. you're yeah, like, hey, you want to turn I sales back off. I guess where I'm coming from, which yeah. is slightly off topic, is you just want to be careful uh, if you are doing that, that if you then have insurance being paid throughout the year from your super fund. From an external from an insurance. Insurer. Like a retail insurance product via that. There is a technical trap there um, that you need to watch out for if you're having an external rollover throughout the year um, to fund insurance. Or if you've got a – it doesn't even need to be an external insurance policy. If you do external – Yeah, you shut your super fund and go to another super fund halfway through the year or something. Yeah, yeah. so just talk to us about that because you, you make a good point. Let's use some round numbers. So let's forget rollovers. You make a $10,000 personal contribution to your super fund that has $10,000 in it already. We'll keep it even. The super fund then is made up of $10,000 that's taxable and $10,000 that is tax-free. So, you've got two components, right? If then you moved $1,000 out of that super fund, it's going to prorate or prorate or whatever... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> pro rata. Yeah. yeah. Pro rata. Yeah. Pro rata. Yeah. What's the plural for for? It's going to pro rata that balance. That mix. Yeah. That mix. Yeah. So yeah. then you're sending $500 taxable, 500 non taxable to the rollover fund. Now you can't tell the new fund at the end of the year to claim that $500 hmm. to say hey that was all switched categories. Yeah, that was that was all supposed to be concessional. Yes. Um, yeah, it's too late at that point. So, okay, so you're right. It's probably not worth doing throughout the year. Well, it, it is if you're self-employed or yeah. if you've got no rollovers. Yeah, so what what um, we've done in the past for some self-employed people is to just set up a a new savings account, a separate bank account that's just super and then they do that and, and there might be 1200 a month or $1,000 a month going into that come June that goes in there, no no negotiation, that, mm. that's got to go in and then we claim the deduction. Because I know and yeah and this is why I'm, I know enough to be dangerous and I'm not a financial advisor anymore but I remember now like if you were going to ever close a super fund and roll out to another fund you've got to tell that fund at fund level to make the deductions to pay the tax and also change the components. Correct, yeah. And some super funds will be kind and say, hey, just before you roll this out, just wanted to make sure you didn't want to claim some of that stuff before. Yeah. But some also don't. So yeah. you don't you don't have that safety net. It's so, really on you. Yeah, so look, we probably got a bit deep and technical there, but I just did want to talk about the first home super saver scheme and also don't do what I say get advice. <laughs> but, but like it is that thing, like if someone did have a super fund and they didn't have an external rollover, sure, do it monthly. Yeah. But then as you said, Alex, it, at least if it's going in via salary sacrifice, it's going in as the right taxable component. Yeah, correct. Or it's that you, you just got to, it all comes down to your own personal circumstances. Um, a lot of the times this is just a bit tricky if you're self-employed or a contractor or something like that. Because mm. um, you could claim in that example before, you could lodge a notice of intent at the six-month point as well before that, say, hypothetical external roller came out. Yes. And then you lodge it again before the end of the financial But that year. would be 
would this, oh, I guess the super funds, they act on that as soon as they get it. They don't Correct. So when we actually do it for clients, we yeah. send the notice of claim at the exact same point in time. So yeah. it's just done. Yeah, cool. Um, all right, moving right along. So I'm looking at page uh, 11 of this and basically you've set up a new kind of cash flow system for them. Yeah, so in this example that we did for Elsa and Chris, we actually did, um, so yeah, because as we talked about earlier, they sort of only had three accounts to begin with. So we, we talked about creating some other accounts to help sort of com- compartmentalize their goals and just help the flow of the money. So particularly, you know, because there was going to be some big changes with this house purchase and obviously having a, um, a child along the way. So the more of it that was automated and hands off, obviously the better and the easier for them to sort of stick to it. So I guess an example of some of the things we um, we created was uh, was an emergency fund. So we agreed on an amount that they sort of always wanted to have in cash um, in case of a yeah an emergency event. They in terms of their spending and stuff like that, um, they 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 definitely could save, which was which was good. They just didn't track it particularly well. So one area that they found that they just didn't really track was their was their grocery spend as right. an example. So we. We, we chat to clients with this about this for a fair bit and it's normally quite popular to actually have a, a dedicated sort of groceries account with a debit card. Um, we often recommend, you know, you just put a label on it or um, take right. it out with a, with right a separate... Right, Scott. <laughs> yeah. Just, just to make sure that um, it's just easier than to track that. So you food. will get micro with some clients if they want it? If they want it, we will get micro. And I guess my advice initially is you get... If you want to, yeah, count all the dollars and cents, you get super micro to begin with, you mm. get used to the system, and then you start consolidating. Right. Mm. Now, when they go and get a mortgage, did you talk to them about potential structures with the mortgage? Yeah, so we discussed, um, we always talk about whether you know, an offset account is going to be um, preferred or not. Mm. And largely that comes down to sort of two things. One, whether they think it's going to be their forever home or not, or potentially it's just a home for a while. So having the offset account and building up funds in that may be worthwhile so that then they, because it maybe get turned into an investment property down the track. So it keeps that sort of flexibility there. Um, but again, it also comes down to yeah, the amount of savings they think they're going to be building because obviously offset accounts, the bank will typically charge you a fee. Mm. Um, we prefer multiple offset accounts if we can, but again, that sort of limits your bank choice there too a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, we will get into the weeds there often though. Yeah. Hey, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the non-super investments and what you've uh, looked at there. We'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We're just going through. You went micro with the cash flow, got all that sorted. Um, they had $3,000 earmarked to invest for the kids' future. Uh, yeah, it was a combination of the kids' future and then something yeah small for themselves. Yeah, so they weren't too worried about having dedicated kids' account or they just wanted to build wealth? They wanted a dedicated kids' account. The issue in this case is the kid is not born yet. Yeah. <laughs> so once <laughs> Can't they, put it in trustee yeah. four. So once they are born, then we will actually set it up. Right. Because we do need a name and a date of birth. That's true, um, yeah. But for them, obviously, it's not a very large amount of money, um, but it was more just about basically the establishment because mm. the idea is then in the future, um, particularly once Elsa returns back to work, they're actually going to be in a pretty decent surplus position even with the house. So then they're able to start to contribute to it regularly. They wanted to have the dedicated um, kids account as part of that so that grandparents and um, friends and family for birthdays and stuff can chuck money in. Um, so yeah. this um, kids account, when the kid's born, will you just set up a second account that's in one of their names with yeah. a trustee as trustee for the kid. Uh, yeah, yeah. In one of the parents' names, I think in this case it'll it'll probably just be joint. I think yeah. is what we discussed with them because they're they're on the same the same tax bracket. Yeah. Um, in in this example. Yep. Now I'm looking here at the statement of advice. You've recommended a share brokerage account, and these aren't gate kept behind advisors. Like I see this on Instagram. People talk about it in the Facebook group. I'm playing dumb here, but like people might think that advisors can't recommend normal stuff. Uh, that's, yeah, that's completely um, untrue. We can yeah. recommend normal stuff. We can, I guess the way I would describe it is we can recommend, recommend normal stuff and often do, and I guess some additional stuff as well, provided it sort of fits the client's needs um, yeah. and it's appropriate and they want it. Yeah. I mean, at the time of recording, so, you know, Shares is uh, sponsoring My Millennial Money podcast. Mm-hmm. It's basically an account like that, like a household name. Yeah, that, that everyone would know. That everyone would know. And you can go direct to them or go to an advisor and say, hey, what do you think? And you guys, so why did you choose a brokerage account with this diversified ETF? Well, in this case, it was it was cost. Okay. Right. Um, so it's very, very cheap to, to purchase the investment option. Um, and again, we were only sort of kicking it off with three grand, so not a huge amount of money there either. They weren't going to be um, in a position in the first sort of 12 months at least to contribute anything to it either. So we didn't want any sort of ongoing fee attached to it or, or any sort of way that it was going to eat into that three grand. Yep. Um, so the smaller the fee to get in, obviously, the better. Um, and then, yeah, also in these guys' cases as well, they wanted this to have an ethical slant right. in terms of their preference too. So that's something we often discuss with clients as well whether there's yeah any sort of importance there uh, in terms of which sort of investment we're picking to. So just on that, like they've got a mortgage, multiple offset accounts, you know, interest rates are increasing. There was still a discussion that we still need to invest. Was it more of a mindset thing or hard financial return? A bit of both, definitely. So yeah, obviously interest rates are a lot higher than what they were sort of 18 months ago. So that that margin of what you sort of expect to earn over the long term with sort of a high growth investment versus what the interest rate is now is is getting squeezed um, a fair bit. Yep. 
but again, long term, it should still it should still outperform based on the literature and the, the history and stuff like that that we've got. And likewise, I think like you said, it comes back more to to that mindset um, and the beauty, I guess, of of the platforms that are available now as well. Is you really don't need very much to sort of chip in too. Mm. And I, and I guess when we go through the cash flow, which we obviously spoke about before, we make sure every other goal that's important to them is covered off on first. So the 20% house deposit, the emergency fund, the travel account and stuff like that. And in this case, after all that was accounted for, $3,000 was left over. So it's working through to make sure that this money we won't need in six months time if the rates go up half a percent or if they when they have a child and they're off work and stuff like that too. So yeah. you've you've basically factored in um you know a time of maternity leave. Yeah, which you can see sort of in the cash flows and that we had an example of their what page that. Uh it was back on so 14 or something. Ah uh, 13. 13, yeah. So like what if there is an expense that comes out of the woodwork that is I don't know ongoing medical they need $200 a month extra for? Like, does it throw everything out? No, um, because we sort of had that discussion as well. Like, often we'll, we always have the emergency fund, first and foremost. You can't see in this advice, but sort of behind the scenes in the strategy work, we also do normally an additional expense buffer of around sort of anywhere between two to five grand, like on top of that, just in case. And then we explain to clients, because I guess we often get asked the question the other way, because people Mm. often don't think they're going to get sick, because this is not how people typically think. It'll be, or what if I earn more money? What should I do with it? And generally, I sort of say to them, well, there's, there's three things you can do. You can pay down more debt, you can invest more of your money, or you can spend it. Mm. That's typically the three things you can do. Yeah. But be likewise, if now an additional expense has, has come along, it's okay, well, we need to cut it from some of the surplus areas. So this might be, we're now going to reduce our ongoing um, monthly contribution to our investment platform by a little bit. We're going to reduce our extra mortgage repayments a little bit. Maybe we're cutting down the annual holiday budget from 15 grand to 10 grand as an mm. example. Yeah. So the, the levers that you pull are the discretionary things. Yeah. Yeah. So here at the bottom... Uh, after the outcome of our advice, you'll be in approximate after-tax surplus position of 4300 per month. This will decrease to $984 per month once you purchase your new home and once Isa, what's her name? Isla? Elsa. Elsa, whatever. Like, like Frozen. Ah, Frozen. Yeah, let it snow, baby. Once Frozen is on maternity leave, you'll be in a neutral position. So you basically, they've come to you and said, this is happening, you've gone, here are the scenarios, post-house, current, and then post-house and maternity leave. Yeah, correct. And I guess the biggest question that they, well, not the biggest question they probably want to answer, but in the end, the biggest one, the the most value was more, okay, if we buy a $700,000 house with a 20% deposit, Mm. yeah, we can afford it easy right now, but what happens when Elsa goes on mat leave? So when Frozen is on mat leave, I'm saying Frozen because it's funner, <laughs> um, you know, they're, I'm looking here, the net income after tax drops to 93000 She still got some money coming in? Yeah, so that was because she's getting six months, I think it was, right. um, of half pay. Oh, cool. And then she's also eligible to get the, um, the Centrelink 18 weeks. Yeah, right. Well. Yeah, so I think it's important for, for planning around this is to to know what your income sources are going to be mm. and, and how much um, because each employer is different. Some employers will, will give you three months and you can take that at half pay. Uh, others um, allow you to take Centrelink on top of that. Uh, others include it within their pay. So it's important to know all that. Um, 
And as well with the the Centrelink uh, payments, they're they're increasing mm. over the next couple of years as well. So it's, I guess, with our planning, what we're doing as well is like, okay, well, by twenty twenty six, it's going to be twenty six weeks instead of eighteen weeks. Yeah. Um, what difference does this this have on on your situation? And this is as well like annualized. Yes. So uh, which I think is is pretty handy um, because yeah, she. Elsa in this example thought she'd probably have the 12 months off so they can see, okay, over the 12 months, this is how it works out, which we explained to them, by the way, like initially that sort of first six months stuff's going to be rising in the mm. accounts, okay? But then for the remaining sort of six months when you're receiving no no income, it's going to be slowing coming down, but it will net off. Um, so this is all well and good, but like, you know, when I go to the doctors, they're like, oh, how many times do you eat junk food a week? I'm like, oh, you know, once or twice when it's like five times, right? What if they're spending habits, like, because this is only as good as the data that they've given you and the ability for them to follow the structures. So there is that responsibility from the client like, hey, this only works if what you've told us is true. So, well, we don't on the what we told part. We don't normally trust them. Yeah, <laughs> so right. we often um, with their permission. But that's like the buffer. Why you put buffers in place? Well, we actually get twelve months of their last transactions as well, normally oh, from all accounts. Right. So there's nowhere to hide, hide. for lack of a better word. Um, right. Now we don't do that with every single client. It really yeah. just depends because some clients will come to us and they've already really got got a good spending plan. Yeah. Um, and they've built up, you know, a hundred grand in savings. So it's obviously working. We may look to work with them in terms of tweaking it and mm. stuff like that. But I would say, and maybe Scott, correct me if I'm wrong here, maybe 75% of clients, we, we pulled the transaction data from the last 12 months. Wow. Yeah, and it's not to judge or anything like that. It's just, just to get the real data because with with uh, PayPass and all that these days, people just forget how much uh, it's not physical cash, so you lose a, lose touch. With yeah, well, what the data spending. doesn't lie, mm. and at least you've got real world to work off. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, and hopefully, if someone is sloppy, once they've got this structure that you've you know work with them it might help them have the structure and not be as sloppy. Yeah, exactly right. And that's why we, as part of the cash flow plan, we'll customize it in terms of how they like to naturally think about money or naturally budget, whether it's weekly, fortnightly or monthly. Mm. Normally it goes in line with people people's pay cycles. But that's where, again, having that sort of, you know, a couple of accounts that you can micromanage it to a degree, mm. you can just have that comfort of knowing at any point in time, this is a position I'm in. And if I just stick to this, you know, in two years time, I'll hit that goal that, that I set out to achieve. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if someone wants to spend money, they're going to be able to spend it. Um, but going through the process and setting out like the next kind of year or three years, people, what we we find, stay stay more accountable to the plan as a result because they they kind of gone through it with their partner and now it's like, okay, well, if I go and blow $1,000 on new golf clubs or whatever it may mm. be, that's going to affect our joint plan for being able to have a, have a family comfortably and stuff like that. Totally. And that's why, yeah, with couples we often encourage them to have their own individual spending accounts as well. Yeah, so cool. you you can go and you know blow your five hundred bucks, you know this fortnight and not feel guilty about it at all because mm. it's there to be spent, um, and it's not affecting your partner or your joint goals either because it's already been factored into the plan. So let's talk about super. Frozen has forty three thousand in super, and Chris has sixteen thousand. So is Chris self employed actor or something like that? Uh, yep, self-employed and has been self-employed for most of his working career as well. Right. So like when you see a lower balance that's relatively low to someone who's been working like uh, Frozen, 
you know, 43 verse 16, was there a discussion there or do you have in the back of your mind that we need to, once we get the house sorted and the kids investing, we need to do something with super? Yeah, we, we have that discussion. But what we do as part of this process and, and what we find is by people having 10.5%, which is going up to 12%, of their salary, even if they are starting a few years late or a bit behind, by the time they are 60, 65, it is going to still be a substantial amount. So whilst it is a small concern, it's not a major concern now and one we we know, but probably put on the back burner for, for a good five to 10 years. Mm. Yeah, because it just comes back down to what's most important. So, because it, it is a question we often get asked, um, particularly when yeah, maybe someone's been self-employed before or just they had a dodgy employer that didn't pay them for a couple of years or something like that and they're like, I feel like I'm behind. But again, it's like, well, what's most important? Because, you know, from what you've told me, you really want to get this house deposit in the next two years and then you want to be able to reduce your work in your, in your 50s or retire or something like that. And super, whilst it is the best tax environment to have any investment, that's not going to help achieve any of those goals. Mm. So what did you guys do with super for uh, Chris and Frozen? So what we did try and do though, however, um, in terms of trying to yeah, add some value and improve it is basically yeah, look at the fees that they're currently paying in those funds. Because yeah. particularly, yeah, again, with a lower balance, you want to squeeze every penny so it's working as hard for you as it possibly can. But like fees aren't everything, No, but it's a good start, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fees, are, fees are definitely not everything, but they are, they are still very important mm. and they need to be considered. The tricky thing is for, for the, the average person um, we found is actually figuring out accurately what your fee is mm. because they do make it quite difficult. Oh, when I wrote the book, Sort Your Money Out and Get Invested, it was the biggest pain in the ass to do the fee comparisons between all the funds because trying to find them easy enough on websites and all that, gosh. So yeah, the, the transparency is definitely lacking there a lot mm. of the time as well um, mm. because, yeah, to find all the fees, you have to go through PDS, investment PDS, supplement PDS. Um, mm. It won't all be in, in one sort of spot. Wow, so I'm looking here. You recommended Elsa move from a industry super fund to a retail fund. We did. Naughty. But, but isn't industry super the cheapest? Uh, not always. <laughs> <laughs> so one one difference, um, well, not, not all funds or anything like that, but it does seem like the theme of industry super is they'll often charge a flat dollar fee plus a percentage fee, yeah. whereas some retail funds will only charge a percentage fee. Mm. So where that becomes important is yeah, if you've got a balance of 16 grand and they're charging 150 bucks flat fee plus that percentage fee, yeah. 150 bucks as a percentage is actually going to be hurting that balance mm. a lot more versus maybe another fund, um, like in this example, a retail fund where yeah, the overall percentage fee was was lower on both accounts. Yeah, yeah, because I can see here you've done a, a like-for-like comparison and that's the biggest trap with comparing super, right? Like don't compare one that's got a balanced portfolio and the other one's got a high growth because mm. you've got to look at the actual underlying investments as well. Which, which is part of what, what we did here. Um, anyone with a balanced portfolio that could be anywhere from kind of 50% in growth assets such as shares or property all the way up to 90, 95% growth mm. assets. So that apples for apples conversation is kind of redundant there. But a lot of people, um, these clients included, will just be in the default option within their super. So that's kind of the other lever mm. that we, we have with, with uh, changing uh, someone's super in terms of um, 
growing it for, for the future is yeah around where are they invested and and for, for the these couples their risk profile uh, hinted that yeah high growth was more suitable because they've got that long time horizon ahead. and I was looking here you've recommended um, Chris move from a, an existing industry super fund to another industry fund so you're pretty agnostic when it comes to what products people go with yeah hundred percent and that's what we what, that's what we tell clients at the start like we're not aligned with any product. So provided yeah. it's on what's called our approved product list, yeah. um, of which through our licensee we have a very open one in that pretty much anything that you could – well, basically the way I describe it is anything backed by some form of research is, mm. is going to be on there. So yeah. we can't you know, recommend Joe Bloggs' investment fund run out of his mum's garage down the road. Yeah. Um, but anything top 300 ASX – all the major super funds everyone would have heard of, um, plus a whole bunch that probably people haven't heard of either. Mm. But again, it all comes back to what's the client's goal, what's the best strategy to achieve that goal, and then what's the best product to fit that as well. Mm. And so these clients, I'm just cautious of time, um, it was a once-off fee for you to do all the analysis and all the work and no ongoing relationship Um and basically, yep, this is what we recommend. Run along. We can help set it up. Yeah, so set up is, is part of yep. what we do. Yep. Um, you know, the sort of the first 30 days after the advice has been provided where we're helping them set up everything that we that we can. Mm. And the way, again, we sort of describe it to clients is I guess all the stuff we've run through today, you know, 90% of that is, is implemented by us. I mm. guess the only things we can't physically do is you know, set them up a bank account necessarily or tell them or, or log into their bank and move money from A to B. They need mm. to do that. But they've got the blueprint in this document and it's been discussed. Yeah. So, yeah, very comprehensive. Like how many hours of work, like human hours, do you reckon? Yeah. So, like, meet, yeah, because we look back on this one um, and, and meeting hours with an advisor is, is at eight, eight and a half, uh, these clients across four meetings. Uh, four and a bit of meetings, I think it was, with a phone call. Uh, in terms of the, the, I guess, the the research, the strategy ideas, which is a combination of of us as uh, financial advisors and our back back office team, mm. um, that was that was twenty five hours. Yeah, wow. Work. Yeah, we know that it's not quote unquote cheap to get financial advice. No, like no. you know, I just loosely crunched, and I don't even need to know what you know, your back-end calculations are because it's your business. But like if a professional was spending eight and a half hours, even at $300 an hour, like dedicated time, you know, that's two and a half grand there. And that's before the 25 hours of admin work, calling existing super funds, researching different investment products. I mean, we didn't even cover it in this um, document, but you did all the insurance recommendations, and you know there was quite a lot of work involved. Yeah, it, it's 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 very sort of comprehensive um, what we do, but I guess it's sort of twofold. Like, yeah, people obviously pay a bit of money for this, um, mm. but likewise, then you know, we obviously take it you know very seriously and put in the work then to to help them get the result and achieve the goals that they want as well. Mm. And we go and, and do our utmost ability to make sure that it's, it's implemented and, and stuck to as well. Yeah. Now, on this case study, did you, either of you have any final comments 
from me, more being on, on the outside to this, because Alex was the lead advisor here, it was how they, they really leaned into the process and really got their hands dirty and, and really got involved and were really engaged through the process because it makes our job so much easier as well when we're getting constant feedback and, and questions and, and guidance. Uh, when we're giving guidance, they're, they're giving us feedback so we can go away and refine it. Mm. Yeah, and I guess for me, it was um, yeah, it was quite enjoyable working with with Chris and Elsa, and the fact that we were able to to fit in so many of their goals in, in quite sort of a, a short space, and really just I guess educate them as well throughout the process too, because they didn't come from from financial backgrounds, um, mm. so they didn't have a lot of knowledge um, of these things. So it was it was really yeah, enjoyable to to work with them and and upskill them in these areas too. Yeah, my kind of key takeaway was looking at their existing even basic cash flow structure, like they rocked up with three accounts, one account having 300 grand and some spending accounts and didn't really track stuff, not knowing too much about their super, had these goals, you dug into all the detail and actually mapped out a plan because financial advisors are more project managers, right? Yeah, definitely. I guess probably my other takeaway, and this is you know a common sort of myth is people were like, well, don't you just need to be rich to go see a financial advisor? And that's that's completely sort of incorrect because we've maybe been able to, I guess, throughout this plan and this process, irk out so much of that resource that they're earning. And they're, they're on, you know, a typical sort of average income as well. Yeah. And that's it. Like, I also thought it was good, you know, the first home super saver scheme, they might not have been aware of that. And even, you know, that tax saving just from the first home super saver scheme, you know, pay for more than half of the advice. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'll, I'll be frank, like, this type of high-touch, hands-on advice, you know, it's not twenty-five thousand. Like I know an advisor in Sydney charges thirteen grand. Like it is, you know, at least a couple of grand, depending on how deep you want to go. But you've just got to know that it is high-touch, high involvement. Yeah. And in this climate, and I'm hopeful, you know, following the advice review that the government are sitting on at the moment prices, cost to serve should start to come down hopefully in the coming years yeah. to provide financial advice. That's the whole whole aim of it because it's becoming unaffordable for, for some, yeah. some Australians unfortunately. And like so to produce this 50-page bespoke document, like hopefully it will get to the point where it can be heavily reduced. You just keep some working documents in the background and it's not as compliance driven and that's really adds a lot of the time on, yeah, right? but the outcome is still the same to the, yeah. the client for sure. Yeah, so look, we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks to Everest Wealth for, um, you know, helping a lot of our listeners all over Australia. You've got advisors that help people from the East Coast to the West Coast, from the North Coast to the South Coast. Yeah, thanks for helping our listeners and yeah, really appreciate it. Thanks for having us on, Glenn. Thanks, Glenn. Cheers, appreciate it. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. 
This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.